the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Meenakshi Ahmed in the house. She's the author of an acclaimed and important new book, a Matter of Trust, India-U.S. Relations from Truman to Trump. A quick background on her extraordinary career. She was born in Calcutta, India, and after finishing school in India, she obtained an M.A. from Johns Hopkins University's School of International Studies. She's had a very career as a journalist and prior to that as a development consultant. Her career has taken her from the World Bank in Washington, D.C., to the Ashoka Society, to moving to London and becoming the foreign correspondent for NDTV. Among the leaders she interviewed were Nelson Mandela, John Major, and Bill Clinton. She covered race riots in London and reported on the spectacular rise of Indian entrepreneurs in the U.S. in the mid-90s. Returning to the U.S. in 1996, she worked as a journalist, and her op-eds and articles have been published variously from Asian Age to Foreign Policy, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. She divides her time between Washington, D.C. and New York, as well as India. Mina Ahmed, congratulations and welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you so much, James. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Well, your book, A Matter of Trust, India-U.S. Relations from Truman to Trump, has received tremendous plaudits. For example, it's been shortlisted, as they say in Britain, or as a finalist, as we say here, for the Arthur Ross Award of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is about as high as one can get. It's also been praised by American and Indian experts, all the way to Strobe Talbot, the former president of Brookings Institution and former deputy U.S. Secretary of State. Talbot, no easy greater, calls it a masterpiece. What prompted you to write this book? Well, that's an um, excellent question. Um, when I was a journalist uh, working, especially in the 90s, back in the 90s, anytime I needed to have a frame of reference, I realized there was sort of a paucity of available books on the subject of India-US relations. There was very little uh, to reference to and um, now, I, I'm happy to say that that's changed in the last um, decade. But when I was working, there really wasn't much. So in the back of my mind, um, I had this idea that something needed to be done to fill this knowledge gap. And I thought, well, maybe when I have time, I'm going to sit down and write something. Um, but it, it would take you know, a couple of decades before I embarked on this adventure because, you know, life always gets in the way and you're busy reporting and doing other, other things. Um, the other reason I did this is that very often my audience in India would say to me, why is it that, you know, we're the world's largest democracy? Why is it that the U.S. pays so little attention to us? Why are we never reported? Things that go on here aren't reported there. Why are we so irrelevant to them? 
And why is it that in India, everything that the U.S. does is, you know, big news? And I thought about that. That made me think a lot about why is the world's largest democracy um, sort of overlooked by the world's most powerful democracy? So <clears throat> these two things led me to when I when I was when I sort of had um, not retired, but, you know, I was no longer actively uh, on television, but I had started writing op-eds and gone to print media. I, I then decided this was a good time to begin my research. And I started looking into it. And I really wanted to find out what drove this relationship for many, many years, for almost 50 years, the relationship was pretty terrible. And I wondered, was it policy or was it people? And I wanted the story to tell itself. I didn't want to come with any sort of preconceived notions. And I realized there were some really big personalities in this relationship. I mean, there was JFK, there was Jackie Kennedy, there was Moynihan, who was ambassador, there was Galbraith, who had been sent as ambassador. These were big people. And of course, in India, you had Nehru and Indira Gandhi and, and Mahatma Gandhi. And so um, I began to put it all together and, and you know, it took me... 10 years, because some sometimes things weren't available and just plying through all the diaries and letters and going digging through all the history and all the presidential libraries. Um, it took quite a while to put it all together. I wanted to do it carefully and to see what drives policy. Is it people or is it the, you know, policies of countries? Well, and one of the important issues that you've hit upon here. And one reason I think your book, which is so readable, uh, I don't want people to hear this and, and be intimidated that it's just for academics. It's not. It's, it's really written in an accessible way. But you point at the beginning to a really fundamental question, and that is when a country at a given moment is, for lack of a better word, a preponderant or great power, who decides where their attention should go? I mean, everybody looks at the great power at the moment, but the great power has to decide where to look. So that's a, a really a big question of leadership. And it seems as though uh, people, no matter where they start on this now, if they look at the world from the get-go, India has got to be in the front row of America's concerns. Yes, well, that's changed. And, <clears throat> and so that changed um, after 2000, really. Um, there were three things that made it change. One was the incredible um, tech revolution, and India also undertook a massive number of economic reforms that uh, made it emerge as a global economic power. And so India all of a sudden now wasn't just a poor country with its handout looking for aid all the time. It was actually now a global power and companies were interested in investing in India. They looked at the population and they'd say, oh, gosh, I could sell so many refrigerators and air conditioners there. But um, so that was one thing. The second thing is you probably it hasn't escaped people's attention that there's a very large and prominent Indian diaspora uh, in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. But let's just take the U.S., the heads of Microsoft, Google, um, IBM. The gap. I mean, these are and Pepsi uh, when Indra Nui was there before she retired. These are all major Fortune 500 companies that are now headed by Indians, and uh, that's just in in the corporate field. And if you look at medicine, it's hard to turn on the television these days without seeing an Indian doctor popping up to 
you know, who's who's sort of um, working on the pandemic, whether it's the Surgeon General or whether it's Ashish Shah, who is part of the Biden team or Atul Gawande. So they've had a pretty big impact. So that was the second thing, the rise of Indians who also want to have um, good, have the U.S. have good relations with the U.S. The third factor, and this is about leadership, was George W. Bush. Now, I have to tell you that, you know, as a Democrat, I I had not intended to make George W. Bush the hero of this book. But in some ways, he is a hero. Um, it's all about relationships changed when either the prime minister or the president of the U.S. stuck their neck out and decided that it was time to reset things. It really took a lot of leadership. George W. Bush recognized that with the rise of China, they needed allies in the region. And Pakistan at that point had become an, a frenemy, an unreliable friend. Um, you know, all those years with the Taliban and Afghanistan being a problem, they realized that there'd been some duplicitness in the relationship and especially with the military. So they had been a slight souring of relations and they looked at India, India's a democracy, and they thought, why don't we um, focus on seeing if we can develop relations with India? And for years, it had been mired in mistrust and prejudices. And George Bush is the first president who said, what is it that the Indians want? What is it that we can do to change this? And that is, and, and I have to say, Strobe Talbot laid the foundation in the previous regime under Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was also very interested in India, but Bill Clinton wasn't able to do much about it. He, when he first came and became president, you know, he was kind of obsessed with India and a lot of people in his office, including Strobe Talbot, were like, what's this obsession with India? Why is he so interested in India? But Bill Clinton saw it as, as a very big potential power. But, you know, the Soviet Union was, was you know, disintegrating. I think they were busy trying to collect all the nukes from all the East European countries. There was lots going on with the economy. And then he got mired in the, in the you know, Monica Lewinsky scandal. So it wasn't really until the very end that he was able to visit India. But what he did do was he sent Strobe Talbot to work on a relationship, on the relationship. And, and, and Strobe Talbot established and sort of laid some foundations um, of cooperation. George Bush, however, took it to a whole new level. He, he said, what is it that they want? And India said, we're a nuclear power. Unlike China, who's proliferated and shared their technology with North Korea and Pakistan and all these countries, and Pakistan, who has given, you know, they want to create the Islamic nuclear bomb, etc. India has been a responsible nuclear power, but we have been maligned. You've stopped giving us nuclear fuel. We've been sanctioned, and we want to be treated as a responsible power. So that set into motion um, a negotiate process of negotiations to bring India recognition in the nuclear club. And that actually was a it was a feat. I've described it in the book. It's almost like a thriller because there were so many times when the two sides just wouldn't see eye to eye. And there was one point when the Americans, they walked out of a 
dinner and a meeting late at night and said, we've had it with you guys. We're heading back to Washington unless you, you know, meet us halfway. And then everyone sort of dragged them back and said, no, 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 don't go. And but it really was the president and the Indian prime minister at the time who understood that they were trying to do something great. They were trying to change the entire relationship going forward. And they would then, I mean, Steve Hadley told me that there were times when the whole relationship almost sank into the toilet. And then literally the president and prime minister would, would tell their deputies, you figure out a way to save this. And they actually put pressure and they stuck their neck out and they would, they would raise it up and put it back on the track and, and make it go forward. And finally, Bush did something pretty amazing, given all the, all the backlash he had on the Iraq war, the economy and everything else. You know, he managed to pass a law in Congress unanimously to give India an exception on nuclear, on the nuclear deal. This nuclear deal became quite famous. And, and he managed with Condi's help, with the American diaspora and- That's Condoleezza Rice, the Secretary of State. Oh, Condoleezza Rice, and they worked very hard on the Hill to bring everyone on board, to realize that this India-US relationship was important and, and they changed US law so that India was no longer going to be a sanctioned country for this. And that changed the relationship. The, the, the Indians began to see the US now as a friend. They thought that this was genuine, that Bush had really gone out of his way. And um, I remember a conversation I had, this is kind of not in my book, it's completely off the record at a wedding, um, a family we'll wedding. keep it among ourselves, only yeah, our audience. You India. know, the, the Gandhis had attended, you know, that time um, they were, you know, in power. And I had a conversation with Rahul Gandhi, who's the skin of the dynasty, who has not been particularly successful as a politician. But anyway, he said to me, we had this kind of, not argument, but he said, um, you know, it's the Republicans in the U.S. that have always been supportive of India. And I, I, I took issue with that and I had kind of a conversation with him. But I have to say that I wasn't fully into my book at that time. I was just beginning. I didn't have all the information that I have today. But I was struck that the impression that, that some of these people had in their minds was that it was the Republicans who are pro-India. And I think that has a lot to do with what George W. Bush did. Well, let's move ahead. And we've got a number of topics to go. So I'm going to press you uh, on some of these. And so we can be sure to cover a number of them in our limited time. Some observers today compare the current Indian Prime Minister Modi with the American President Donald Trump. They're often put together in the popular press as populist nationalists or something like that. What do you think of that? I think it's accurate. Um, I think um, he has managed to appeal to people's fear and he's used religious divisions to whip up people and their sentiment for the sake of political gain. Uh, you know, someone once said that politicians have hijacked religion and it's, you know, they've been doing it for centuries since the Crusades. But I, I mean, it is absolutely true that he has been a very divisive factor in, in, in India. And 
you know, he's the people have bought into it. I mean, he's he won, he's winning with a landslide. And there's the problem is that the Congress Party, which was effectively the party in power for so many decades, um, by making themselves a dynastic party, basically shot themselves in the foot. And Can we pause there one second so our audience is all on the same page? So you're referring to the Congress Party that following independence became dominated by people associated with the names like Nehru, Gandhi, and so on. Right. And and the Congress Party was, you know, really a, a very nationalist party that helped to fight the British and, and get the British out of India. And so a lot of the leading luminaries were members of the Congress Party. And it was never meant to be a dynastic party. The first founder, Nehru, the, India's first prime minister, he was a very, he was a committed secularist. Um, he he was firmly believed in democracy. Um, he was an intellectual. He had studied at Harrow and at and at Cambridge University. He was a he'd written several books. So he um, would have been surprised to see that his daughter Indira Gandhi had become so dictatorial and converted into a dynastic party. Um, I think we would have been quite disappointed. I'm, at least I hope so. Well, let's think about for a moment, because you've worked all over the world and you're a journalist as well as a historian. This whole question of nationalism keeps coming up. It comes up in Poland. It comes up with Russia and Ukraine. It comes up in Turkey. Yeah. It's coming up in the United States. It's coming up in India. How do you view this and what could be learned in particular from, say, India on this issue, if anything, or is it not really unique? Uh, well, it certainly isn't unique anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm not. There have been lots of books with very prominent historians who have, you know, uh, tried to analyze whether democracy is dying or whether, you know, democracy is going to survive this onslaught of nationalism. So I'm not exactly sure. Um, I don't think I'm particularly well qualified to answer that on a international global level. Um, I think that one thing I will say about um, the current BJP in India, which is the ruling party of, of uh, Mr. Modi, is that it is democratic. Um, there are no family members. There have been, you know, the people who have risen to the top have risen through their own merit and their own hard work. So the people uh, in India who was, I think the Congress party had become old and stale and became a family fiefdom and had and that had corrupted itself, um, except for the last prime minister, Manmohan Singh, who um, was not a member of the family, but appointed by a member of the family. I think that people were fed up. And so I think this was a pendulum that shifted uh, in favor of uh, a party that was seen as more democratic and that was from the people. This is the, also the first prime minister that isn't sort of highly educated. Uh, India's had, uh, well, Mrs. Gandhi wasn't particularly well educated, although she'd attended Cambridge. But uh, many of the prime ministers have been uh, very educated, erudite people who um, were intellectuals in their own right, uh, particularly the last prime minister as well. So but, when you say educated, you mean formally educated? Yes, I mean, the last uh, prime minister, Manmohan Singh, uh, from the Congress Party was um, an academic, he, and he was 
you know, had gone to Oxford and he was an economist. He was, you know, had a doctorate. He was quite well known amongst other economists in the world. So he, he you know, when he undertook reforms uh, and was uh, and changed India around and made it a successful country economically, he he knew what he was doing. Um, this is the first prime minister who wears as a badge of courage that his father uh, owned a tea stall. And, and, you know, he often makes this quip that hard work is better than Harvard. Um, and he's I think he's right, I must say. I don't know if that's a good, that's he's a good suspicious, summary. But he is very suspicious of academics and engineers and scientists. Uh, and, you know, he does not surround himself by... Um, you know, intellectual smart people, he surrounds himself by political strategists and strongmen. Well, let's so, turn to the current moment. Fund oh, his, go and corporations, of course, who fund his um, coffers. So he is quite, uh, he's very pro-business. And in a sense, when you look at Putin and you see Putin surrounded by oligarchs, um, I'm beginning to worry that now we have in India Modi, who is also surrounded himself with some very wealthy business people. Okay, we have a, a number of additional topics to get through, so I'm going to press you to uh, maybe compress a few things further than we'd like, and maybe we'll get you back sometime as well. Uh, ever since India's independence, India has often put itself in the so-called non-aligned block, which has been frustrating to the U.S. in the West. On the other hand, taking the longer view, Americans might well see in India another echo of our own history. I mean, George Washington's farewell urged the United States to steer clear of alliances of great powers, then European. Recently, India's declined to join the group uh, supporting Ukraine against Russia. How should Americans think about this state of affairs, if that's accurate? Um, so, you know, India... Um came out of colonialism. And America had, of course, come out of colonialism a long time ago. Um, and and when, so India is a new country. And when they came out of colonialism in 1947, um, it wasn't that they were anti-Western, but they were simply, um, they just didn't want to link themselves up or take orders from another Western power. So during the Cold War, Truman, for example, uh, saw the world in black and white. He just thought you were either with us or against us, and you had to take sides. India refused. India's first prime minister said, no, um, we do not want to be beholden to any any uh, other power. We want to be completely independent. And so he, he came up with this non-aligned policy. And um, he said they also needed to be corridors of neutral space in the world where countries could come and compromise and come to agreements. And he thought that, you know, India could provide that. I think he had a slightly overblown sense of India's status in the world. Although at the time, when you think about how they achieved their independence, which was through nonviolent means against the British, that was a Gandhian um, strategy, uh, it was quite successful. And so Indians felt they had some sort of moral superiority at the time, that they had achieved independence and greatness through nonviolence, and this was a great thing, and they wanted to also not take sides and be neutral. Um, India, so after Stalin died, it made it easier for India to um, to, to make friends with, with Russia. Um, this has actually led to, India's policy of non-alignment has been embraced 
completely and fully by everyone in India, from the people to the politicians to the civil service. Uh, and and despite the, the differences in parties, they all seem to agree on remaining non-aligned. The current foreign minister, um, who's not from Congress, and he, he, he has espoused a policy of strategic autonomy where India can pick and choose um, alliances based on their strategic interests. So now where are we today with Ukraine? Ukraine has changed the, you know, the world goes through these geopolitical, these sort of seismic shifts. One was after World War One, one was after World War Two. Now after World War Two, we had the Cold War. Um, Ukraine has sort of brought up echoes of that. Um, we are seeing NATO becoming closely aligned and expanding. And so India is in this awkward dilemma. They have aligned themselves with the US when it comes to China, but they're not so pleased about being put in a position to sanction Russia. So why is that? That is because when the US um, refused to supply India with uh, superior arms and its most advanced weaponry, uh, India turned to Russia and Russia was very happy to fill that gap. 90% uh, of India's spare parts, uh, military spare parts come from Russia. And even though they no longer depend on us Russian arms at that level, it is about 50% now. They have diversified and they are now buying a lot more arms from um, Europe and the US. It's still, um, you know, they have two hostile states on their border. One is Pakistan and one is China. China just um, took over more territory from India in 2020. That was pretty recent. They've had lots of border clashes and China feels, you know, China's constantly threatening India. And so India cannot afford to simply just jettison their relationship with Russia. And it takes time to completely convert an entire military and their equipment over so that they're not that dependent. And they've done a pretty good job, I think, going from 90% to 50%, but it's gonna take time. So that is one of the reasons they cannot afford um, to sanction Russia. Uh, I think the other reason is the regional balance. Um, Russia has always been a friend to India, the UN. They've always um, been a reliable veto for Indian interests in Kashmir. And the US hasn't done that. So I think that for the US to all of a sudden say, look, you're a democracy and you have to line up with us, it's complicated for India. So yes, they're willing, willing to do that when it comes to China, but not so willing to do that when it comes to Russia. And India feels that they need to follow their own strategic interests. Uh, Mina Ahmed, let's go through four big questions in a lightning round, pretty fast here. The first, China reached a billion people in 1980. 17 years ahead of India. Today, India at 1.38 billion people is forecast to overtake China's population in 2026, when both countries pass the 1.46 billion mark, according to the World Economic Forum. How should Americans think about this important development? Well, I think um, India has been a big supplier of um, technical, you know, engineers and various people coming in to uh, fill in the gaps in the US. When you think of how many engineers graduate from India, 
and how many graduate from the US, it's a very large gap. And given that we're now living in a technological age, I think India's, India's playing quite an important role in high-skilled labor uh, for the US. So, and whereas China's population is aging because they followed that you know, one-child policy for such a long time. So even though the base is big and they're a big country with lots of people, I think it's uh, the it's going to be you know diminishing going forward, and certainly uh, it's got a very big aging population. India, sixty percent of the population still under the age of thirty, and that has a lot of implications for in you know, economically and in other ways. But in terms of the U.S., it is a a pretty um, good labor market for the U.S. for high skilled labor. A second big question, the rules-based international order led by the United States following the Second World War is clearly under new stress in new times. Where do you see the question of force or the threat of force from nations as a primary driver versus a so-called rule-based system? How do you see that unfolding and how might that affect India in the coming years? So the rules-based um, international order is critical to keep the world stable. It's kept peace in Europe for, you know, o- almost 70 years now. And if you recall, in the old days, Europe was constantly at war with each other. So I think it's it's critical that we do everything we can to promote the rules-based order. I think one of the big deterrents of people resorting to um, arms is the nuclear threat. A lot of countries um, have nuclear capability. If you look at, you know, the Russia and uh, the Putin has been threatening to use nuclear arms, but he hasn't so far in in Ukraine uh, because he knows that that might incur a, a backlash in kind that could inhalate, you know. Uh, parts of Russia. So I I think that people are, it is a deterrent. Um, The same thing in India, China, Pakistan and India are all nuclear armed states. And many people have called it the most dangerous place in the world because it doesn't require a lot to to escalate an issue. I mean, we all know that World War II, the drift to war, Some of it was just so unanticipated, small things that led to big things. So sometimes a small mistake can really be very costly. Uh, I think it's uh, we're in a very dangerous place right now. And what what Russia has done, I think they thought that when they walked into Crimea, no one said anything. The war with Ukraine has been going on for some time. Everyone ignored it. And I think they thought they could get away with it. But I think their very expansionist policy that they're pursuing has destabilized the world. And China, by the way, is also pursuing a rather aggressive expansionist policy. If you look at what they've done with the islands, and they said they wouldn't militarize them, and they have. Um, If you look at their push to keep America out of the Pacific, They've, they've been fairly aggressive. So we have two aggressive nations that are trying to reduce American hegemony in the world. They are they're sort of bucking up against American dominance. So I think it's it's 
something that the world has to consider very carefully as to how to manage. Let's move to China for a moment. Trump and Biden, while they would appear to be very much opposed on nearly everything, actually have a lot of continuities that can get lost. And one of them is that after five decades of accelerating investment, trade, and other support for rising China, the U.S. found itself face-to-face -face with a peer competitor. Trump called this out, and Biden has continued this reset, the latter adding much greater attention to alliances in the Indo-Pacific. What do you see in the future, and in particular, the so-called Quad Nations, India, Australia, Japan, and the U.S.? How can they work together constructively in this new world? That's a fascinating question, and I wish I had a crystal ball. But um, the quad, the quad nations, I think now have been elevated. It was, it was around for a while. It was not particularly active. Biden has really injected a whole lot of life into it. Um, he, I think, he thinks it's a major asset in terms of containing China, and it's interesting because. India has always been viewed as a frontline state against Chinese expansionism. That is, India was a poor country in the old days, but it was a democracy. And even though Nehru and Truman clashed, they decided to support India with food aid because it was a democracy and because they wanted communism to be contained in Asia. And JFK was very prescient. He said, you know, the next century is going to be the Asian century. And he, and when uh, when India was invaded by China in 1962, who went out of his way with his ambassador Goldbraith to push the Chinese back and let them know that India was going to be supported by the world's most powerful democracy. Um, so things haven't changed. You know, China's still a threat, except that now it's a real it's a real threat to the West because of its economic power and. It's military power. I mean, it has more uh, naval power than the U.S. now. So the question is, going forward, how does one see this playing out? I don't think the quad on its own is enough to contain the Pacific threat. I just don't see how, how, that, how that's sufficient. I think it would, you'd have to have a another architecture of alliances in the same way that after World War II, the US, U.S. foreign policy was built on the system of um, alliances, you know, with NATO and with the Pacific. They now need to really focus on, on a new system, but not against the Russians so much as against China. And I, I, the Quad is, it's interesting, but it's not really, um, it's not, they're not treaty allies. And uh, they sometimes follow their own interests. For example, on Ukraine, Australia and Japan have both have both sanctioned Russia along with the U.S. India didn't do that. So uh, India also is not a perfect democracy anymore in the way that Australia and Japan are. India has resorted to populism. It's uh, moving away from its secular state and national identity that was there for so many years. So in in flavor and in tone and temperament, it's changing and it's moving away from what the U.S. really believes in. And the question is, 
are they a wobbly fourth leg in this in this cooperation or are they a firm leg it's not clear what india is going to choose to do but they will have to expand way beyond the quad to contain china let's talk about a fourth issue in this series of four and that is humankind's relationship with the natural environment this has not been a focus historically and it is now the pandemic is a striking example of the need for more statecraft in this area. Climate disruption, of course, is the biggest of all. India is the third greatest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions following China and the U.S. just ahead of Russia and Japan. How can the U.S. and India forge a special relationship on these sorts of issues? Well, you know, it's been the the BRIC countries, that Brazil, China, and India, it's been, um, their approach has been that, you know, the developed countries emitted for all this time, grew their economies, and just because we're starting now, um, why are we being, you know, told to limit our, our footprint? Um, whereas the, and the US still actually has a long way to go to match Europe. So they feel that it's an unfair system, that, that they're being asked to do things that the US and Europe never did. And they have the benefit now of having polluted the world. I mean, at the world's expense, they've all developed. Um, so there's been a lot of reluctance to conform. However, one of the things that Modi did, he made getting along with the US a cornerstone of his foreign policy. And he knew that when President Obama came in his second term, President Obama was very keen to have climate change as one of his legacies. And, and so Modi recognized this and he decided he would cooperate with President Obama to get the accord done. And I think it was believed the Copenhagen Accords. And um, so he, he did cooperate and he agreed to for India to limit its emissions to a certain degree. Um, Trump, of course, has not made any such, um, he's not extracted any promises from anyone on this. So he, he didn't think climate change was such an issue if you look at his policies. So I, I think Indians don't feel um, the same sense of obligation. Um, climate change is, is, you know, we were already in it as we can, we've all experienced. So I'm not sure, but a lot of people say that if you think the migrations in Syria and um, Ukraine are a big deal, wait till climate change kicks in in another 10 years if we don't really do something drastic about it. The massive numbers of people on the move, uh, moving away from countries when nothing can grow and where it's too hot to live. You won't, you know, you haven't seen anything yet. So I, I do think that this is something that's so critical. Minahana, let's go through several questions about your own life and work. How has your work as a journalist covering current events influenced your work as a historian? And how has your work as a historian influenced, excuse me, your take on contemporary events? Well, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll answer the second one first. Um, I think my work on historical events has really made me pause when I write anything now, because I realize 
you know, if you don't remember your history, you're condemned to repeat it. And it's so important to know uh, that we're not reinventing the wheel in, in a lot of cases. You know, it was some of the same arguments, some of the same discussions were all there. Um, and so I feel the more I, I've studied, the, the more humble you feel in terms of what you don't know. And so I, I, I do think historical perspective is important and that has now started to inform what I write and how I write. Um, and you're less, you, you feel less inclined to be opinionated and have, you know, sort of strong, you know, strong opinions about various issues, because when you look at history, you see how things turned out and you realize you could be wrong. <laughs> um, the second one, um, I really, you know, I, so I'll, I'll give you a small example about something about my life. Um, I remember once my, my, I remember once reading a book by Antonia Frazier on Marie Antoinette. And I, and I was fascinated because this was many, many years ago before I started writing my book. And I thought, gosh, history can be fun. Um, this is just so much fun. And and when I started reading that, I thought, well, what came before then? What came before, what was France like before? So then that led me to look for books on the Sun King. And, you know, then I thought, and Talleyrand. And then I wanted to read a little bit about what France was like before the Louise. And that, and Germany always comes up when you read France. And I thought I didn't know enough about Germany. So this led me on a two-year excursion of, my kids had gone to college, so this is what enabled me to do it. And so I, I started going from one country to another and trying to read up, you know, about everything. And it was so much fun. And and that's why when I wrote my book, I thought, you've got to make history fun so people really want to read about history because history is so important. And if you look at my book, it's not just about policy. The policy issues are there. But I've tried to make it about people as well. And for example, why did Mrs. Gandhi and Nixon hate each other so much? Like they couldn't stand to be in the same room and the things he said about her, you know, so what what led to this dislike? And then so you go back and you try and put it in perspective. And, and it's fun to read about people. So, you know, the fact that um, I mean, Truman had all had a shoe fetish and had all those magnificent shoes. He was the best dressed president in U.S. history. I mean, all these little things you discover, which are anecdotal, but they make it fun to read. So um, and how did, you know, my journalism affect uh, my history, mainly because there were a lot of unanswered questions that I felt I needed to find out about. And your book does it very, very well. Let's take a very big question for you that you're uniquely able to respond to. The US and India are linked not only by history, but clearly have a shared destiny. And how do we make a strong asset of this remarkable influx of Indians into the US? Well, now you're touching on my next book. <laughs> um, well, I think that, you know, U.S. has been an absolutely wonderful place for Indians with talent. Um, 
it's open. It's a meritocratic society. There's no caste system. There's no, uh, India is a very hierarchical society. And um, I remember when I was growing up, uh, now that's may have changed now, but when I was growing up, people wouldn't say, what do you do? They'd say, what does your father do? And um, it reminded me a little bit about what French society was probably like back in the 1800s. But India was stratified. There was there were caste issues, um, and it, a lot of things were based on connections and privilege. Um, you know, everyone thinks that Indians are all very educated, but it actually just a century ago. Um, education was reserved for the upper classes. Uh, a lot of the people that first came to this country um, back in the 1960s, there was an earlier wave, but in 1960s, a lot of the people that came to study here were all upper caste. I would say 90% of them would be upper caste people. They had all the privileges of education, etc. So um, what, what people, and that that has now changed after 2000, after the tech revolution. India has a very, very high degree of affirmative action, some some up to 35% in some universities. It's huge. So a lot of people have come up through the ranks. But um, majority of these people, if you look at the people who have been successful here, if you look at their caste, their upper caste, um, Satya Nadella, Sundar Pichai, all the heads of Google and Microsoft, etc. So I think that what's wonderful about this country is nobody cares about your caste, what your father did. What They just care about how smart you are and whether you have the skills to do well. And so um, Indians have thrived in that atmosphere. And that's a great place to end this. Uh, Mina Ahmed, is there anything you want to be sure to include as we go? I, I, I'm, uh, I, I think that one thing I would like to say is that as the US and, and India progress in their, um, in their desire to become partners, strategic partners globally, I think it would be really important to also align on their value system. Uh, India's identity from the beginning was a multicultural secular society based on a rules-based international order. And um, its constitution is a wonderful document based a lot on the, on the American constitution. And I think that it would be important to make sure that India remains not just a democracy in name, but an actual democracy for all its people so that there can be a real relationship going forward. Beautiful place to end. Thank you, Mina Ahmed. It's a delight to have you with us and congratulations on your important book, A Matter of Trust. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter or our website or at Substack. Until next time, excuse me, take care and be strong. Thank you. These are not dark days. These are great days the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.